Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Tiltify's VP of Strategic Partnerships, Larissa Ryden. Larissa brings over 20 years of experience in marketing, corporate development, and nonprofit leadership. After quickly moving up the ranks at American Lebanese Syrian Associated Charities for St. Jude's Hospitals Children's Research, she held the position of Mid-Atlantic Regional Director, overseeing two offices and an annual budget of $13.5 million. Following her time in that role, she held executive positions at both Autism Speaks and the Alzheimer's Association, before becoming the Vice President of Strategic and Brand Partnerships at the United Way Worldwide. Larissa led a team responsible for securing $4.8 billion in annual revenue and supporting a corporate portfolio that included 427 of the Fortune 500 companies. During her tenure, she secured hundreds of new enterprise-level partnerships, including Lyft, Starbucks, Google, Pepsi, and DoorDash, established the brand partnerships, function for the organization, supported the development of network-wide innovation program, and served as a key leader in driving the organization's global strategy and digital transformation. Larissa received a BS in social science and economics from Florida State University. Originally from Tampa, she now lives in Northern Virginia with her husband and two children. So Larissa, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Cameron, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. You've got a really interesting background to kind of run from the um, the nonprofit world and then into the profit world and, and dealing with some of these major organizations. Kind of walk us through a little bit of your path and, and maybe what you learned along the way. Like give us almost like a, a short verbal bio, but what you learned at each of the stages. Sure. I, I actually began my career in the hospitality industry and marketing and special events. Uh, peak of the economy. So a lot of fun. You know, it was Wonderful, didn't know there was a downturn coming, um, but you know, learned quite a bit there, more than I, I think I realized. Um, you know, Certainly marketing in that sector is difficult, a lot of competition, and then uh, really fell in love with special events. And did my first charity event uh, a few years in and realized that, oh my goodness, I can put all of this hard work into making the world a better place. And so, spent the last 20 years uh, in the nonprofit sector in a variety of different leadership positions, um, you know, at Autism Speaks, Alzheimer's Association, and St. Jude, uh, where a lot of my work was focused on the special event side and the fundraising uh, event side of, of charity partnerships. And really that's where I learned how to manage a team and how to grow and, you know, had my own PL and it really grew up a lot during all of that. And then my most recent position was with United Way Worldwide prior to coming to Tiltify, where I really got into the corporate sector and working with all of those Fortune 500 companies and uh, managing a global team at that point. So really expanded my career quite a bit. And, um, and then in that role, actually discovered Tiltify and realized that was where, where I needed to go with my career. It was the perfect merge of you know, what I'd learned in my career from a charity perspective and then from the corporate perspective and really being able to bring that together. Uh, I worked with them on an initiative called Hope From Home uh, right when the pandemic hit. And 
it just really changed everything. It was this great digital fundraiser where you saw celebrities and everyone getting involved. And it was just a whole new world for me. And I saw so much potential to really grow and expand that. But unfortunately, had not uh, was not done with my work at United Way. At the time, I was overseeing our global COVID response, and so couldn't pick up and leave and, and go to Tiltify. So uh, towards the end of, of last year, made the jump and have been so excited and happy to be part of that team and, and really take my knowledge and apply it to a whole new industry and sector. All right. So we're going to get to Tiltify in a second. I want to go back to, and you said the, the kind of the downturn, was that the 2000, 2001 market crash or was that the 08, 09 financial crisis that you were talking about? Early 2000s. Early 2000s. Okay. Cause I, I, you didn't look old enough to be there, but um, well done because you're like 12 year old back in 2000 doing your job. Um, that was a crazy time when the dot mark, the dot com era blew up. I remember the NASDAQ crashed by 78% and I was living in Seattle at the time and we said, you know, well, the last person to leave Seattle, please turn out the lights. It just seemed like a, a big explosion. So when you, when the 0809 crash hit, then you'd already been through it once. What do you think that you brought to that downturn from having been through it once already? You know, it's hard to remember back 13 years. It is but- hard to remember back that far, but I think it's really about knowing that everything's great now, but you really need to think ahead. The market can turn so quickly. Everything can change at the drop of a hat. So you have to stay agile. You have to stay adaptive. You have to really think two to three steps ahead of of what's coming. And even then, you may not be able to predict it. You know, who would have predicted 2020? We all Mm -hmm. had different plans for 2020. So I think it's just understanding that everything can change quickly. And, um, you know, throughout my career, I think that's probably one of my biggest learnings is how to adapt and how to change and how to be able to pivot quickly and be okay with pivoting quickly. Mm -hmm. Kind of being entrepreneurial. So how do you bring that entrepreneurial, you know, pivot and changing quickly inside of a larger organization? Because to do that inside of a, a United Way worldwide, how do you do it inside of an organization like that? I think it's just a lot of testing, Um, testing new ideas, seeing if they work. Uh, It feels like once you have the case study that everyone really starts to listen. So it's about building consensus and building trust within the organization and being right a lot of the time. Uh, You know, I think that's, you know, I tested a lot of things. I was lucky to be right in a lot of those tests. So I gained credibility in that. And so was able to really move a very large ship in a different direction. Uh, One example, they didn't have a cause marketing department when I started. That was not something that United Way did. Yet there was an amazing list of corporate partners um, who were looking to do more brand engagements. So it started with just me and one other member of the team. and, And we built that entire function that ended up raising a significant amount of money, um, especially during COVID, we saw, saw a huge response there. So I think it's it's just testing and changing and going with the flow. And do you think that, that cause management or that cause um, fundraising transfers into, you know, companies getting sponsorships or is it is it so specifically tied to causes? Do you know, did you think you learned anything that would apply to people that look for sponsor dollars as well? Absolutely. It's really understanding what the partner is trying to accomplish, the audience that they're trying to reach, and what the hook is in order to get to that audience. We've seen a lot of times in the cause marketing space that that hook happens to be social impact or making change in the world. 
but that can really be applied to anything. It depends on the business, depends what they're trying to accomplish. And I think it's just so important and I can't stress it enough to understand what your partner wants to do, to really understand their business from a very genuine place and try to match solutions to accomplish that. So I saw someone post the other day on social media, like I'm, I want to start selling to fortune 500s and here you are, you've sold to 427 of the fortune 500. So what did you, what did you learn from doing that? And, and you were doing it for such a hard part of the, um, the, the nonprofit sector as well, that, that fundraising tends to be the role that nobody wants. Like, I don't want to go ask people for money. I just want to help, you know, give it away and do good. You took the tougher role, I think, in that organization as well. If it was tough, I certainly loved it. It was like a puzzle that you had to put together. You mm-hmm. had the, the corporate partner on one side who, you know, the Fortune 500 always has problems they're trying to solve. Um, whether that's an internal problem that they're trying to accomplish, whether that's a brand problem they're trying to accomplish, or it's a you know social impact issue that they're really trying to fix. You know, they care about homelessness or something else. And so it's a matter of understanding that and then being able to connect them to a solution to, to fix that problem. And so I think that's really what it is, is listening, understanding, and then matchmaking and putting the puzzle pieces together. Your, your network must be massive. I had a friend of mine that did fundraising in Manhattan for the Guggenheim and the Met, and he did it because he wanted to get to know all the high net worth individuals in New York. So he was able to call every single high net worth individual and kind of say, hi, I'm with the Guggenheim. And sure enough, he'd walk in their door and Sergio kind of met everybody. Your network, who, who do you sell to in the Fortune Fives? Is it the, the marketing? Is it the CFOs? Who are you talking to? It, it really depends. Uh, you know, a lot of times, it's the social impact team, but that expands to marketing, you know, that it expands to, you know, sometimes it's the human resources department if you're, you're talking about employee engagement. So it's really, it really runs the gamut just depending on what they're trying to accomplish. But, you know, I, I do pride myself on my LinkedIn network. I, I can pick up the phone pretty easily and get to just about anyone. Um, but that's been, you know, a career of building relationships and maintaining mm. those relationships. It, it didn't happen over so in talking to these groups, how do you prevent, you know, when you get in with a big corporation and, and they tend to say, oh, yes, we're interested. Yes, we're interested, but they're not interested. They're just like kind of taking along because they'd rather not say no, or they're just, they're busy being busy. How do you know when to cut and move on? How do you know when it's just not going to go anywhere? Sometimes I don't think you do know, um, but I'm not one to just keep coming back. Uh, you know, with the same thing. I think I tend to be a very straight shooter and have built very honest and interesting relationships with my partners, even early on to where, you know, I will point blank ask, is this just not something you're interested in? And, you know, is this something I, you know, what about this proposal is, is wrong or not working for you? And, you know, can I follow up again at a later time? You know, I believe that you're always planting seeds. And sometimes those seeds will grow and sprout right away. Uh, Sometimes you've got to water them over a period of time. And sometimes they're just bad seeds that are never going to grow. You don't know right away, but through a few conversations, you'll be able to pick up on that and and have an idea of where you are within the spectrum. And then, like I said, you know, it's, it's about building those very honest relationships and having those honest conversations of, you know, you know, I just want to help them. Uh, at the end of yeah. the day, I just want to help them solve a problem. And if I'm not the one to do that, I'm okay moving on. 
So this may be a little tactical, and then we'll we'll jump from this into Tiltify in a second. But um, what what tools were you using to manage all those relationships in the sales cycle, and then also post sale to maintain the relationships? Like you mentioned, you can reach out to any of them now. What are you using to maintain those relationships? Because you can't, we can't just always reach out and say, "Hey, can you help me?" We have to kind of stay in touch and stay connected, kind of adding to the the social capital we have with them before we want to withdraw. What, what were you doing? first on the CRM side or the contact side, and then secondly to maintain afterwards? Sure, that's a great question. Um, Pre-COVID, I think the the benefit was I saw a lot of these folks at the same conferences and you know in different networking settings. So it was very easy to stay caught mm. up and connected. I had to get a little more creative in terms of maintaining those relationships. I've always found that birthdays are a great way to stay connected with folks. It's a very personal day. So my calendar is just filled with so many people's birthdays. And I try to do a really good job of reaching out very genuinely to, to wish them a happy birthday, see how things are going. My mm. closest contacts, I try to, to stay in touch on a regular basis from a personal level. You know, what's going on in your life? Um, you know, how are things going? And then I'm very active on LinkedIn in, in terms of just, you know, interacting with folks that way. So I, I try to stay connected in that respect. From a back-end, very tactical management side, uh, you know, CRM tools are great in terms of managing relationships uh, and managing kind of the, the different prospects in the queue. Um, I don't believe in bots and automated messaging. I, you know, probably a little old school and in writing all of my own emails, you'll never get an automated email from me. It's always personal, um, you know, and like I said, genuine and, and um, relevant to, to what's going on. Well, what conferences do you connect with them all at? Oh gosh, there were some great ones. Um, South by Southwest is an awesome conference. Engage for Good is a great conference. Um, social Capital is a great conference. So a lot of the big you know, social impact conferences really centered around corporate engagement. It's uh, it's a lot of the same folks that attend. Interesting. Them. I've been going to the main TED conference for the last nine years, and I think it's filled with with your audience as well, with a lot of the, the C-suite for sure. Um, all right. Tell us about Tiltify. Who, what's the organization? Because how did they grab you after you know building up such an amazing um, background and and set of experience? How did they get you? What what grabbed you? I think it was just the work that they do. It was such a special blend of everything that I've learned. I, I believe in if you look at my career progression, uh, I'm always wanting to try new things and what's the next step. And you know, believe what in my path in my past has led me to this point. And so I always try to keep forward momentum. And I built a great relationship with the CEO just uh, in passing and then in our working together and was just fascinated with the company that they built. So they they started, we started in the, the gaming space, really pioneering the whole live stream fundraising campaign initiative. And you know, they were established in 2015 and have seen consistent growth over time. But certainly with, with COVID and just the live stream industry changing so significantly and everything really moving more into the digital space, they had huge expansive growth and um, were doing a lot of great things. And for me, I saw a really great opportunity to expand that world in the corporate and brand engagement side. And so that's a big part of my focus is how can we start to leverage more brands and more companies uh, within this space and how do we start to you know, expand this and in, into new audiences and, um, 
you know, new platforms and new integrations and that sort of thing. So I was just really excited about the feature that they had ahead and thought it was a great mix of my experience and that I could bring a lot to the table. And while they're not quite startup mode, they're more in the, we're more in the complete teenager stage. Um, there was, you know, the excitement of, of building something and hoping to grow something where all of my previous roles, I've been in very established organizations. So tell, tell us for everybody who, who's not aware, what does Tiltify do? What's the core focus? Who's your target client? Sure, it's a digital fundraising platform um, that is leveraged on social sites like YouTube and Twitch uh, and exactly the exclusive fundraising button for TikTok and others. And so content creators will leverage that to fundraise for the causes that they care about. Um, so, you know, and it's everyone from mainstream content creators uh, you know, we did some events with Steve Buscemi and Adam Sandler, Casa de Goonies, um, to your more traditional content creators in the in the Twitch world, Jacksepticeye and Markiplier and, and Dr. Lupo. Um, so it, we've got great fundraising tools that you can leverage to raise money. And we really live at the intersection of those content creators, the charities, and um, the brands. So, you know, those are kind of our three main, main sections. Is it a crowded space? Not particularly. I think our offering is is unique. I'm sure everyone thinks that and says that, but I really do believe it. Um, you know, I did a pretty lengthy competitive analysis before joining the team. And I think we, while there's a lot of technology out there, um, they're not quite harnessing those three donor segments in the way that Tiltify is. They're not, they don't have the relationships with the content creators. They don't have the list of charities that are using them, which right now we have over 3000 and it's growing on a daily basis. Um, and then, you know, like I said, in, in the ability to bring in brands and leverage them on the platform, I think is, is a game changer as well. What's the difference between working with some of these influencers and the, you know, the, the brand names on Twitch that you rattled off versus the brand names that you've been working at in the past? Is there a difference in terms of working with them, getting in their door, building those relationships? Not necessarily. What, what I love about everywhere I've worked in my career is big name celebrities or even small name celebrities, they're coming to you to make the world a better place. So that's what I love about the nonprofit sector is mm. people are coming from a good place in their heart. Uh, now there is a big difference, I think, between the digital content creators and then your more mainstream celebrities, just in terms of their familiarity with how to operate on a digital platform. There's a bit of a spectrum there. Um, the, the digital content creators know how to engage with their audience. They've been doing it for years, more one-on-one -on -one, um, live recordings, whereas you know more traditional actors are, are used to, to pre-recording and multiple takes and uh, you know not having as much of that one-on-one -on -one interaction. But I love to see when those two worlds merge and that tends to be a, a really fun thing to watch um, where you have you know, a content creator bringing their 25 million subscribers to, you know, something with a more mainstream celebrity that may not have the social following and then the interactions that can happen from there. And how, how big is the team now? 40. We are 40 people. Um, pre, well, 2019, it was 12. And then I think prior to that was about a handful of folks. And uh, we're hiring a, a lot of roles and, and continuing to grow. That is kind of the teenage stage. It's a, good, it's a good name for it because it is, you've got your management team, but you're not quite the full established leadership team yet. You're bringing in some senior leaders. Um, 
What's it like bringing in some of the more senior seasoned talent into the company now around some of the more junior, you know, the jack of all trades, master of nuns that have been there for a while? How do you, how do you socialize that you bring them in and integrate them into the organization without causing a lot of disruption? It's actually been quite seamless. They're, you know, I think the the more junior staff is eager to learn and grow and expand and, you know, gain different knowledge. And then even the more senior staff, the way we've done it is, is a lot of our content creators and people who you know, use all these platforms uh, and are really good at that uh, have a tendency to be the more junior staff. And we're bringing in, you know, folks like myself that, you know, are more, traditional corporate or working in the charity space. So we all bring a different perspective to the table and we're learning from each other. And so I think it creates this really beautiful environment where you share ideas. There's not a lot of competition because we're all marching in the same direction and learning and growing, you know, from each other with each other. And pre-COVID, were you you an office location-based company? Were you remote already? What was happening there? And where are you now? Hiltify has always been a very remote organization. Our development team is located in Tucson, but the the business side and and the majority of others are all over. We have folks in the UK. I think I'm one of the few on the East Coast. A lot of folks live on the West Coast. Uh, So we have a very remote culture. Um, This is my first fully remote position. So that's also been uh, an interesting adjustment, especially when you're managing a larger team and and getting Mm -hmm. to know everyone and aren't able to have those in-person interactions. And so how are you managing that right now? How are you managing the team and how are you dealing with some of those interactions? A lot of one-on-one conversations. We do a lot of team building events. Uh, Just about a month ago, we had a digital magic show, which I thought sounded super cheesy, but was incredibly fun uh, that we did. So I think it's just taking the time to get to know people on a personal level and not just, you know, Zoom tactical meetings every day talking about the business, you know, really pausing and, and getting to know them as a person, what motivates them, you know, what's life like outside of, of their job. And so that's been great. It, it actually hasn't been as challenging as I thought, but still, you know, there's that, you know, going and having dinner, or, you know, grabbing a, a beer with, with your team and, and your fellow colleagues. Uh, that's definitely been missing. Yeah, it's a little different for sure. Yeah, we run a couple events recently for our COO Alliance. We used a group called Work Play Jam, and they run some really fun remote events for for companies. We've run a few events with them, which have been fun. Um, how are you funded right now? How is Tiltify funded? Uh, we have Series A funding that we acquired uh, middle of last year. So that's been helping to spark some of the expansion. And then we make our revenue off of a processing fee for all of the donations that funnel through the organizations. There's some a la carte services and some partnership fees as well, um, as far as how we generate our revenue. But the majority is, is that processing fee. That was my next question. Yeah. So what is the processing fee? What percent? It varies depending on the partner, but it usually usually around 5%. Well, that's small. Mm-hmm. And then is that is that including whatever the merchant fee is, like the, the Visa or MX fee, or is that, that's plus, right? That's additional. Okay. Yeah, that's great. What's the organization? There's an organization out there that rates charities. Do you know what, what's it, what it's called? Or are there a couple of them? Charity Navigator, maybe. Maybe, is yeah. The yeah, it, it kind of gives you like a rating, like a number of stars, and it says whether how much of your percentage of your dollars are being pushed out and that kind of thing. Do you guys fall under that at all? Probably not, right? Considering you're more of a, a technology tool for 
for people donating to the charities, I guess. Right. We're, we're considered a for-profit organization, but yeah. our, the charities that leverage our platform and use our platform are part of Charity Navigator and, and do get stars in, uh, on that. And all of our charities that use our platform are vetted in 501c3 organizations, so they would be found on that. And your platform's only for charities, right? Like you're not tying into other ways for these, these um, influencers or, or users or whatever to raise money. It's all about raising you know, fundraising dollars. So our entire goal is to drive revenue to to charities and to give them the tools and the platform to be able to do that. That's really cool. Does anything like that happen at the merchant level where, you know, when, when we're at a coffee shop and we're being constantly asked to, would you like to add money for the tip? Has anybody ever been doing anything there? Like instead of adding money to the tip, I'd rather donate to charities. Sure. That's um, pretty pretty basic cause marketing. Um, you know, you see a lot of Roundup and Donate. I'm sure you've been at the the grocery store where they ask right. you, you know, hey, would you like to, to donate a dollar to this cause? And I don't know about you, but I usually kind of look behind me to see if anyone's looking. And <laughs> right. if they, you know, if it's a cause I care about, I'll donate and then, right. you know, move along with my day. Um, so there's, there's different technologies that are automating that process a little bit more. And even some of the work I did at uh, United Way before I left, we were working with, you know, partners like Lyft where they were, you know, implementing Roundup and Donate. So every ride you took, you would round up your dollar and it would go to, um, you know, different transportation initiatives with mm-hmm. United Way. That's cool. Um, all right. So you did your Series A. What what was that like when you were doing that? What was it like when you were raising the money? And what was it like post? How much did you raise? I was not there at the time. So I don't have a lot of information on that. Um, I remember talking to Michael, our CEO, and I just know he was very stressed about it, um, but was very excited when it all came to fruition. And He was and working was- on it for several months. Yeah. What do you know? What changed for the organization? Did the culture change? Did you start hiring more quickly? Did it did it change anything in a bad way? Not really in a bad way. Uh, I think that definitely saw some slight culture shifts, but really only because we were expanding the team quite a bit. It also helped us to invest in a lot of processes and technologies where you know we didn't really have a CRM to manage all of our you know clients and and so implementing different systems that could allow us to to really grow and um, you know manage our business in, in a much more efficient way what is your tech stack can you walk us through some of the different software applications you use we're in the middle of switching our CRM so we were using pipedrive and are now uh, switching over to freshworks um, we use freshworks because that's also who we use for our help desk tickets so it's able to connect some of our customer service technology, um, you know, with our you know general CRM database, uh, that's that's really it. You know, we use a lot of Microsoft suite products. Um, we have Zoom and we have Teams, and that's how we get our business done. Uh, but we're really looking to continue to grow and expand and and leverage more. We're looking at project management software and some other things right now as well. We're just putting Freshworks in place as well to manage all of our clients for the CO Alliance as well. My EA has just done a ton of research around it. And that's where she landed and she was briefing me on it on Monday and super excited because she'd 
gone six ways till Sunday, figuring it all out. And it did everything we actually wanted and, and was easy enough to use, which was great. Talk to me about, about this global team that you were running back when you were at United Way. I mean, what was it like working with people in different countries? You know, clearly you're having to work with many of them remote. What did you, what did you learn from some of the different countries and how do they do business differently or even better in certain ways than we do? Philanthropy in general across the globe is very different. Mm. Um, and that was something I learned pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, even, you know, U.S. and Canada, because marketing laws are very different, um, you know, just in North America. And you know, international giving laws are, are very different depending on the country that you, you work in. And um, the propensity to give is also very different uh, country by country and the causes that they care about. So I don't know if that's an easy answer. It's probably its own podcast on its own to go through all the details there, but it was an incredible learning experience to be able to experience those cultures and to understand what the different nuances were. Uh, I had the chance to visit a lot of those and um, really enjoyed my time there. Managing a global team can be hard from a time zone perspective. I remember we'd always say, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good day. Um, Cause you never, you know, when you started a call, uh, but it did require you to be available um, mm. all the time, you know, for, for crises. And so I was, ne- well, I'm still never very far from my phone, um, but there would be times where you'd have to wake up in the middle of the night to, to, you know, address an issue. Uh, so. Yeah. We just had an event for our CO Alliance and one of our members was saying, well, I got to, I got to sign off for the three hour call. It's midnight here in London. And we're all like, wow, it's so great. You stayed up. And then one of the women started laughing. She goes midnight. She goes, it's 6.30 in the morning here right now. I'm just going to sleep. I've been up. I had to wake up at three to do the call. I'm like, wow, that's ridiculous. And here I was in Vancouver, like, wow, it's, you know, two in the afternoon, just going to get some more work done. Um, It's been pretty interesting in COVID. I feel like, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Do you feel like as leaders, we're more empathetic to the human condition or the humanity of our workforce more than we've ever been. I feel like I'm more connected to people. Like I saw you with your cat walking across your desk and, you know, I've had kids walk through in the middle of an interview and a year ago we'd be laughing at, Oh, that poor guy at CNN, right. His kid came in and now it'd be like, you wouldn't even blink. Right. Um, or, you know, I got to go home early cause I'm taking care of my kids. I, I feel like, are, are we more empathetic than we used to be? A hundred percent. No questions. Um, you know, as you said, I would be mortified that my cat walked across my desk right now. Um, but that's that's the norm. She responds to whenever I'm on Zoom, she's always in, on camera. But I think it's just desensitized us that, you know, my kids have walked in, I don't know how many times to ask questions. And so, and we're all, well, the majority of us are working from home. So you're getting to see inside your, you know, whoever you're talking to's world a little bit more. And it's all been more real. I mean, major CEOs are, you know, having their kids walk in and their cats walk across their, their desk. And so I think it's just normalized everyone and, um, you know, kind of allowed us to be a little bit more of ourselves and show a little bit more of ourselves because we're operating in this virtual world. Yeah. It's funny. One of my, one of my teenagers, he was 17 and he was, um, I think he became more empathetic to me doing business from home recently. I've been doing business from home for 14 years, but because he had to start doing his last year of school online, 
And he'd be like, dad, I'm in the middle of a zoom call. I'm like, Oh, right. Like I was now being empathetic to him. But one day he went outside to make a smoothie and I saw him literally carrying the Nutribullet out the backyard and closing the door and he's out in the rain making a smoothie. So I wouldn't hear it. I'm like, that's so cool that it's a 17 year old got the wake up call. All right. Let's talk about you working with the CEO of a growth firm. I think you said his Mike name is Michael. Michael. Yeah. What's it like working with an entrepreneurial CEO versus working in a big organization first off? What's the differences there? I think the biggest difference is he's worn all the hats before. Um, Sometimes he was the only one wearing the hats and he holds a ton of institutional knowledge, uh, which has been really great. And also I think I pepper him with a lot of questions to try to pull out all of that information quite often. Um, But you know, I think we both have entrepreneurial minds um, and, you know, he built this from the ground up. You know, it's it's not like, a, you know, a United Way or another organization where a CEO came into an established organization. This is his, this is his pimply teenager, right? He, he uh, you know, he gave birth to it and he's grown it and groomed it. And, um, you know, so I'm also very respectful of that and, and probably a little bit more cognizant of what direction do you want to go? You know, this is this is your baby. How how do you want to to groom it and grow it and change it? Um, but you know, he definitely surprisingly gives me a lot of runway to to manage my teams and um, you know provide insight. And I guess that's why he hired me. So it's been well, a it's it, been a great relationship and a, a shift. It's pretty rare that someone can go from the corporate world, especially you were in the corporate world, nonprofit world for 20 years. It's pretty rare that people can go from that kind of an environment into the entrepreneurial environment successfully. It's a, it's a completely different culture. It's almost like, you know, living in, you know, the United States and then deciding to go live in Thailand. I mean, it's just a different world. What do you think made you successful in making that leap? And, and what did you struggle with in making that leap? That's a great question. I think I've been lucky to have, you know, work in innovation teams and other areas within the nonprofit space. So I've always had to build something. So I knew what it was like to have to build something from scratch and to grow it. And so I thought, oh, this is the same thing, you know, it's same environment. But the biggest shock I think was not having some of the brand guidelines I was used to at, you know, previous organizations that just hasn't been, you know, created yet, or um, which we have now, or different processes and things that I was used to uh, that I may have had in in previous roles. But I think I was successful because I acknowledged that. I was self-aware enough to realize, okay, you know, I have transitioned into a new environment. This isn't the same as I've worked everywhere else. Um, and so I think just allowing myself some grace and the people around me some grace uh, to be able to, to adapt and, you know, put those systems in place and, and establish them. So rather than saying, I'm so disappointed we don't have this, it's great. Let me help build this. Let mm. me let me draft this procedure. Let me look into a system that can solve this for us. I love that you you once described the company as a teenager and then you second described it as a pimply teenager, which is the first time I've ever heard it. That's even better, by the way. It's even better. Um, what do you think was the 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 tough parts of you? Is it like it has it always been easy you working with Michael, or have there been the kind of highs and lows in that relationship? And if there were the the highs or lows, what what do you think got you through them? Because I think it's fairly normal. I think it's being real. You know, I think it's, you know, having mutual respect and trust and being transparent with each other. I think that's that's really the key to, to any relationship, especially I think, a you know, employee 
employer relationship, uh, you know, we're able to call each other on it. You know, if I disagree with something he says, um, I'll say it and vice versa. And we're respectful of each other's opinions and we'll, you know, come together to, to find a solution. And so the good thing we were friends before. And so, you know, we had a relationship and, you know, had worked together before, so it wasn't completely new, but I think, you know, it, it's been great and we have a lot of fun. You know, I think you also have to laugh at yourself, uh, mm. send a lot of memes back and forth and, you know, just make jokes. I think that definitely helps. Um, yeah, what do you make think, it more what do you think drives him crazy about you? I mean, we're different personality profiles, the COO and the CEO or, you know, the second in command. What do you think drives him crazy about you? I ask a lot of questions. So I imagine that that might be it, you know, especially early on. Um, I'm sure he probably rolls yeah. his eyes like, oh, here's another 18 questions from Larissa today. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think he acknowledges that, you know, by sharing that information, um, I now have that knowledge and can, you know, impart that onto to my team and then won't ask him again. So I usually don't ask the same question twice. Do you ever do any personality profiles on yourself or on your team? We have not yet, but that's actually a great idea. I would love to, to do that. There's a really great one called Colby, K-O-L-B-E. It's a Colby A profile. They're actually based out of Arizona as well, but they've been around for about 30 years. The Colby A profile talks about how you start projects, how you initiate things. And what you're talking about is being a high fact finder. You ask a lot of questions to initiate. Most COOs are very high fact finder or their second number is high. They call it follow through, but it, what it really means is they put systems or playbooks in place to start something. And most entrepreneurs start. They just start and they plan later, right? They're winging it. They're shooting from the hips. And it'll be really interesting. I'll bet you his, he's a very high quick start. I'll bet you if you do the call, but his profile will be something like 4393. And I'll bet you yours will be something like eight, seven, you know, four, three, um, which is amazing. But it's like, how do you stay in sync with each other and understand each other? Because what he probably drives you crazy on is he'll say, oh, I don't care. I don't need that. And you're like, no, I want to give you more data. And he's like, no, I don't need it because his brain's full. Right. And you're like, but I want to share. Um, anyway, yeah, ch check it out. It's really powerful. We have all of our members of the CEO Alliance and then all of their CEOs do it. And I've been, been using Colby for 20 years. It's powerful. Last question I've got, I want to know about you when you were just kind of starting out in your career. If you were to lean back, I'll talk about Sheryl Sandberg saying lean in. If you were to lean back 20 years and give yourself some advice, what advice would you have loved to have known 20 years ago that you know to be true today? Well, that's a hard one. Um, I'd probably say that you don't have to be perfect. I think I, I have a tendency to be a bit of a perfectionist and have always been. And very early on in my career, I you know, wanted to be perfect. I wanted to get noticed. I wanted to get ahead. And I thought that, you know, if I, if I do everything right, then you know, good things will happen. And that may have helped me move along in my career, but I think I put way too much pressure on myself at too young of an age to, to be perfect and to, to get it all right. And now looking back, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, because now I'm much more easy. It's much easier for me to admit mistakes or, you know, say, yep, I don't know the answer. I would have never early on in my career admitted that I didn't know the answer to something. That's awesome. That's huge advice, actually. Larissa Ryden, the VP of Strategic Partnerships for Tiltify. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. 
Of course. Thank you. It's been great. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.